0: Hi fellow geochemists and geochemistry enthusiasts, welcome to Geochemist Tea, the only podcast for people who love geochemistry with a side of tea. Our mission is to inspire aspiring geochemists and to introduce our listeners to niche geochemistry topics. I'm your host, Sam Scher, and this month we're talking with Sam Cantor about luminescence and exploration. Sam Cantor is a customer success lead at Sequent. Sam, welcome to Geochemistry.
1: Thank you for having me, Sam.
0: It's my pleasure. Sam and I were put into contact by mutual friends at Sequent because Sam is working on their Driver product. Super neat. Driver is a platform that uses a novel set of algorithms to tackle 3D modeling of complex data sets, particularly geochemistry data sets. So, Sam, could you tell us where you've been and how your life has continued to be entangled with geochemistry?
1: Absolutely. Growing up, I was always interested in rocks and my mom noted the interest and everyone kept telling her all kids are interested in rocks, but (laughs) uh, I guess it stuck for me, but the real thing that was amazing is that I actually had a bona fide geology class in 10th grade. So in high school, I had a geology class. And one of the key things I remembered is we had those standardized tests to get into university and the science portion of the ACT had a geology question that almost everyone I know missed and I got it right. And (laughs) so I had the wonderful experience of explaining some of these basic geologic concepts to a bunch of my high school friends who just, you know, missed that question. So that definitely kind of spurred it. What was the question? I think it was something about sedimentation or tectonic sure. process or something. And so I was really interested in that. And my guidance counselor was like, well, you know, you live in Boulder, so you should go to school mines. And I just took that at face value and didn't really realize that was an engineering school until I got there, sort of embarrassingly. <laughs> and I think a lot of geochemists, I am not the best at math or a lot of those (laughs) topics. So after severely struggling for three semesters, I transferred back to CU to do just general geology. During that time, I got to work my chemistry muscles out. I worked at an environmental lab that was testing asbestos uh, samples from all over the place. Then I worked at a gold mine as an intern, and then I helped a PhD student with radionuclide isotope samples. And then got into the mineral exploration game and that was really where all the geochemistry came to a head and just fell in love with the science so got to do gold exploration in nicaragua and then like a lot of geologists the price of gold crashed and i ended up in the midwest doing groundwater sampling of landfills and soil sampling and which is about as fun as it sounds and so i got a master's program at ubc with the mineral deposit research unit And then got to look at a lead zinc mine in Peru, investigating stable isotopes. And that's actually where I tripped into this whole luminescence thing, which I'll detail in a bit. So it's been a lot of different flavors over the years. And I think a lot of geologists, you know, no one's path is linear and you just kind of do what you can with your skills whenever you are presented with some opportunities.
0: You can't be more right about that. No path is linear. (laughs) So true. Crazy. And no path is easy. When I've heard people's stories, usually the the one thing that they all had in common is that, you know, for their undergrad, they stayed in one place, but your path was already not linear from the beginning. So,
1: (laughs) yeah. No, it was, I mean, I didn't go that far. It was only about 20 miles, but I do remember something that was very helpful, which was I think my senior year, we sat down in a room with a bunch of senior geologists and Literally, every single one of them described the most erratic pinball career. And my dad, you know, was a kind of 40 years in a watch kind of guy at IBM. And so that was kind of the career that you look at. And then it was so refreshing, just for context setting, to hear all these really accomplished geologists, but just man, like everywhere all the random serendipitous changes and opportunities. And and it was basically the lesson I took from that is you just kind of got to say yes for a while. And then once you get more experience, you can maybe be a bit more picky, but certainly at the beginning, you kind of got to say yes to everything.
0: Yeah, and I think I'll pick up on two things there. The one about saying yes, I mean, I just didn't even know what the company was and I said yes to a job in Chile. So you just got to go, not wrong. Yep. But the other thing is just that, I think looking back on it now, I agree with you, every accomplished geologist, I feel like it's the only field where you can have such accomplished senior members that have been fired, but nothing that they did was below board or anything. And it's just probably the most interesting thing where it's don't worry if you get fired. I mean, I myself have been retrenched. It's something that as geologists, we just have to be constantly ready for not take very personally because it's completely market-based and not to do with necessarily you so well it's,
1: it's similar to the sort of tech industry too where you'll get people who are really high level product developers and stuff and they just get laid off with some crazy market event and then after the big layoffs is when you get the formation of all these new companies. And you see that with a lot of the origin story of a lot of really successful exploration companies or exploration consultancy groups is just a bunch of people who got laid off and were sick of, you know, sitting with that sort of commercial sort of Damocles above themselves. Well, I I can work at this company until they're until a downturn and then I'm screwed. And so they just kind of, I mean. You have your own consultancy. So it's very <laughs> it's, similar, obviously.
0: Like, you are speaking to me, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, you're speaking to my soul right now. And I think that's really important for the young listeners is just that starting my own consultancy, the the part of it behind it was that, yeah, it's not that it's, you know, easy necessarily to generate new business and everything, but I was tired of just being at the mercy of the markets. Like if right, I'm going to be at the mercy of the, of the market. markets. It's yeah. on my own terms, and I'm ready to go because, I'm not an overhead expenditure at this point like i'm just something that they can pay as a one-off so anyway everybody's got their own business model here but yeah no it's a very interesting point i think it's definitely not unappreciated by anybody that's listening out here that said do you have advice for listeners out here that are pursuing maybe some other avenues in the geoscience but still keeping perhaps geochem close to their hearts and in the workplace
1: Yeah, as we've covered a little bit, I went from civil chemistry to mining to isotopes to back to mining to groundwater chemistry, back to mining and back to isotopes. And so the idea is that there's so many ways that geochemistry touches the broad spectrum of the industry. I think the one key thing is, in addition to kind of saying yes to even unconventional opportunities, I wasn't stoked on doing the groundwater stuff, but that actually helped my professional career in a lot of ways and develop new skills, but also just that curiousness or the curiosity. I mean, you gotta, a lot of geochemists have that where there's enough elements that you can look at that it's super <laughs> interesting to always kind of wonder and so what are, what's going on? What's this combination here gonna say to me? And so that curiosity is kind of what drives your ability to stay relevant and you know, when I went into environmental, it's oh, instead of wow. maybe an average fifty-one element suite, you've got one hundred and ninety contaminants, and it's not as exciting to talk about them. But the combinations and what they're saying is pretty interesting.
0: Such a good point. So I I thank you for that. But now I think it's time for my favorite segment, which is tea time. Hmm. So are you ready? Are you ready to spill?
1: Yes. Okay. So the thing I was thinking of when, uh, thinking of the tea time was a topic that's pretty close to your heart as well. When okay. I was in Nicaragua, mm-hmm. I was really junior. It was my first true kind of green fields exploration project. And so I didn't know anything. And early on we, the, the organization decided to get a tear spec and they decided to train me on it. And so despite the fact that I was completely green and didn't have any experience, I was the only one who knew how to operate the terra spec. And so I became the de facto dead. litmus <laughs> test. And so <laughs> the best thing ever was to have a bunch of gray-haired, very experienced geologists in a high sulfidation epithermal deposit mm-hmm. environment where you've got impossible to log rocks, all bleached white. Try mm-hmm. to tell you all of the different ways that you can tell Dickite from Allenite from Pyrophyllite, from Zuniite, and how Love wrong that. they always were, and then the way that they would sort of backpedal as soon as the Terraspike gave the answer. So yeah, that was definitely really fun because as a relatively powerless green newbie, <laughs> to be given essentially the answer key to the test And say, well, I know you said it tastes like sandpaper, but you're just wrong. It was really empowering to a young geologist. And what that got me onto was just the beauty of these more data-driven methods, right? And that a lot of geology is this beautiful art mixed with the science and so much of it is down to your gut and your your intuition. But where you can zap something and get an answer that should really focus your tension away from what have I been using my gut to determine and what can we now analyze? So that that was a really enjoyable part for
0: me. Oh my goodness. I'm in love with that. Yeah. There's something really incredible about hyperspectral and whether you're pulling out a tear spec or you just have a scanning system, the power of it to just tell you your mineralogy. I mean, look, that's another whole complicated topic right. that we're not going to get into, but just from that piece of it. And then just to be the youngest on staff, <laughs> just telling all these, yeah, it's
1: just, and they're all sitting <laughs> around with beers and going, and I go, okay, what do y'all think is this one? They throw out their answers and it's just, it's the, it's just this fun game of jeopardy. And you know, you just put a Zuniite in there and nobody guesses it because why would they? And then it was really funny.
0: I think the best thing that, one of the best applications that I have seen was this project called antiquary in peru they talk about it all the time in conferences basically what they had a huge scanning program with hyperspectral mineralogy and for them it's a combination scarn high salvation or free so just like everything oh under the God, sun this, yeah like yeah more than 50 minerals like it's it's absolutely insane without the compositions they still have a very active core logging component of their project and so what they decided to do though was whenever they were in these very rich clay areas was they would log it as white mineral and then they had this whole thing on the back end where they would go and they would look at the hyperspectral data that was gathered and then they ended up being able to pull apart four different events (laughs) one was a combination of four different minerals and three different minerals and so then they were able to model it but what they had said was hey we're gonna guess these minerals wrong anyway and it's too time consuming for us to try and just map out all these minerals that are wrong anyway so let's just call this zone white mineral then we know to go back in look at the hyperspectral data later and Pull it apart that way and then the way in which they were then able to model it. I mean that their epithermal zone is just it's so cool. It's so beautiful. It's, yeah and I uh, love that because that's inspirational. That's, what you,
1: <laughs> that's taking the ego out of it. Going, I recognize I will do this poorly and, and therefore I will not waste time doing it poorly and just <laughs> defer to the next step to do it well. Yeah. And that's yeah. kind of what you got to do.
0: Well awesome. I really enjoyed that. That was some good tea. Now moving on, for this episode, we read both a book chapter entitled Luminescence and Exploration, but also part of your master thesis that's entitled Exploration Tool, Tracking Cryptic Alterations Surrounding the Sky Cruz Zinc, Lead, Copper, Silver, Scarn, Copper Replacement Deposit in Central Peru. So yeah, could the you title's give us, crazy? Like, the title's crazy. I was just struggling. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, hmm, I'll edit this a little bit, but not too much. It's, it's worth it idea. for everybody to see me go. Anyway, so could you give us a quick rundown of the premise of this discussion? What is luminescence, and why is it something important to consider?
1: Absolutely. Yeah. The I like to say the premise of my foray into luminescence starts with a broken machine because my master's was focused on the use of these stable isotopes of carbon and oxygen. And so I was at the MGRU and UBC, and how we analyze these was by using this proprietary device that is truly revolutionary in the, in that kind of isotope science. The issue is that it's sort of a one of one. Without getting into too many of the specifics, by the time I was ready to analyze my samples, the machine was broken. And it was broken for a very long time, And so I didn't actually start analyzing the principal samples of my study until about 18, to 20 months into my 24 month duration masters.
0: So that gave me a
1: lot of time to take a look at all of my rocks. And so I had a lot of time to cut them and log them. And one of the things that my supervisor recommended was he said, well, you're in a SCARN CRD system. You need to use your fluorescent lamp on them. And so I did, and I saw a couple cool ones. And then at some point someone commented that the lamp I was using was not very good. So I got someone else's lamp and the number of fluorescing samples went from about a couple dozen to hundreds. I think I have eight to 900 luminescent samples in my masters. And so I had all of this time. And the thing that was the most interesting thing to me is that everyone told me, hey, you're in a CRD or SCARN, you need to use a lamp. But I actually couldn't find really anything that substantial in the literature about using UV lamps in mineral exploration. It was just kind of something people would throw out that you did. So the the more I couldn't find on it, the more it became really interesting. And so getting back to your initial question, so luminescence is a catch-all term for when visible light is being emitted from substance. And so when you shine a light, a UV light on some material, it will excite the electrons to a higher energy state. And when they jump back down to their ground state, they emit a photon and so the wavelength of the photon and therefore the color corresponds to the energy difference. And so if you use a UV lamp on a mineral that fluoresces, the color will tell you a certain amount about it, but not everything. But people have long used fluorescence in mineral exploration. As I said, they just haven't been really writing a lot about it. Even back, back as years ago there's this mine in New Jersey called Franklin. That's the world capital of fluorescent minerals. And they would use the lamp for ore control and it's just phenomenal. I've actually been there and you can dig through the muck pile and stuff like that, but basically there's, I think seven or eight minerals that fluoresce there. And so you could actually kind of sort your, ore without any sophistication. In assaying just by the light now. A lot of people are also familiar with she-light, which is a tungsten mineral that's a primary fluorescing mineral. But to to sum up, basically, it's something that everyone told me to do, but then there wasn't really anything detailed or super scientific about it. So it, it caused me to try to put a little bit of science into this kind of practice. And I'm really happy to say that I had started colleagues at the MDRU who took it way farther than I did in the scientific sense. And I'm working on a paper with some colleagues that will be coming out later this year or maybe early next year that will summarize all the advances that have been made.
0: That's so interesting in the sense that, well, first of all, that in, in that one mine, there's over 900 fluorescent minerals like that just is blowing my mind. But it's really interesting that it's also widely used in the oil and gas industry, And as you say, it is used in our industry, it's underutilized for something that could be such a very low cost, easy technique, easy win, especially in the exploration phase. So I definitely look forward to chatting more about this. Getting into some of my questions here, I would say that a bunch of our listeners know about the infrared in terms of some remote sensing and hyperspectral basics. That's definitely a big hot topic right now in our industry, but... The UV is is an adjacent technology, so to get us all situated, where in the electric magnetic spectrum would the UV sit?
1: Yeah, so UV sits outside the visible, and it sits below it in the shortness of the wavelength. And it's been really interesting because uh, a lot of insects and animals actually use it. Some bees and owls and birds use it. But in terms of equipment, you know, geochemists are used to all sorts of different types of equipment, this is the easiest it ever gets. It's just a lamp, right? So there's shortwave, midwave, and longwave UV lamps. And so they'll range kind of from maybe 254 to 365 nanometers. But the vast majority of luminescent rocks are active with the shortwave. And so for any explorationist or geochemist to get into it, I recommend buying a decent lamp. And there's essentially no maintenance, right? Unless you drop it. But there's so much depth that you can get into, but the beauty of it is that you don't really have to, that you can just use a shortwave lamp, start looking at some of your qualitative relationships and hit the ground running. The only thing is it is a UV lamp. So you got to wear gloves and sunglasses. I had a <laughs> undergrad student who's helping me out with something and he just had the funniest sunburn on his one finger
0: because oh my he, goodness.
1: Kept, he kept <laughs> holding the rock. And so it was like on the side of his index finger. You just had this gnarly sunburn. Oh my goodness.
0: Was, you know, UVA like, or UVB. <laughs>
1: yeah. So.
0: So then, you know, we're talking about shortwave, long wave, midwave, all sounding like fairly similar terminology to working with infrared. Yep. But also in reading your paper, I discovered that there's also five types of luminescence. And I'm just wondering how are they different? How are they related to each other? And then also Which one do I necessarily choose for my project and really what tools do I need?
1: Yeah, so the the main two are very related and that's fluorescence and phosphorescence. So phosphorescence, if you have those glow-in-the-dark stickers on your ceiling when you're a kid, that's phosphorescence or is now they're trying to uh, migrate to the term afterglow because it's simpler. But basically (laughs) fluorescence and phosphorescence are the same thing where they're excited and then fluorescence is where that electron returns to its ground state in nanoseconds, and phosphorescence is where it takes kind of any longer. And there's like a bunch of crazy complicated physics with entanglement and stuff that causes the photons to take longer, but for a geologist, it's not relevant, it just does. But the key thing is that the phosphorescence is really interesting because some of it lasts one second and some minerals will have, you know, 15 second glow after the the light source has been removed. And so even in my master's project, and as I talked about in the chapter, I was able to quantify that and actually give these sort of categories of phosphorescence intensity by how long it lasts and how strong it is. Now, cathodoluminescence is not something I used, but it's where you do need a specialized piece of equipment. And a lot of times it's used for, I believe, looking at elemental composition of minerals and making these little maps and stuff. So if you're in that kind of very academic detailed study, that's where it's gonna be useful to you. I've seen it used a little bit in active exploration, but it's one of those things that's, you know, you're seeking an explanation that might not be very timely. So it can take a while. Tribal luminescence is really interesting because it's basically you hit it and it glows. (laughs) And it has, yeah, like I, I don't, yeah, so you like break the rock, and then the physical breaking of the bonds releases photons. I've never seen it in my, and I've seen a video of it, but it, yeah, it's really interesting because this Wild. person was, I'll see if I can send it to you, but they were taking their rock hammer and hitting this outcrop at night. And it, I mean, it was like a video game. It just, glow. it was like, if you've ever been in a bioluminescent ocean, you know, you splash the water and it glows. It was kind of like that. I don't know how you'd use it, but it was neat. <laughs> and then thermoluminescence is similar it's when changes in temperature can basically release trapped excited photons and the interesting thing that i learned about fluorescence and phosphorescence is that they're also temperature dependent so if you're curious to see what your fluorescent response is you can cool the rock down and it will usually be more intense and so but what i will get into a little bit later is just that everything about using it in mineral exploration is consistency. You need to take your photos consistently. You should have your temperature consistent. If you were logging in a hot core shed in the summer or a cold core shed in the winter and tracking the the luminescent response, you'd probably see a noticeable difference in intensity during the winter. And so you wouldn't want to be doing kind of apples to apples comparisons.
0: Mm. Yeah, I hear that so let's shift a bit from physics and definitions now to talking about some crystal chemistry veneers were work due to both electronic processes so crystal field absorption and electronic transition and then vibrational processes respectively so we've already kind of talked about this a little bit but just to underscore this here what causes these minerals and rocks to luminesce then
1: yeah so I'll i'll focus on the fluorescence primarily mm-hmm. But yeah, so the process involves a delicate mix of three factors. They're called activators, sensitizers, and quenchers. So simply activators cause luminescence, sensitizers enhance it, and quenchers quench it. Activators are almost always some concentration-dependent ion substitution in a key spot. So you might have manganese 2 plus is a very common one. Translocations in the mineral lattice can cause it, but I don't think they're common enough to be really a a primary factor. Sensitizers are really interesting because they change the color and strength of the fluorescence. So a very common one is this manganese 2 plus in calcite. It'll make this sort of medium pink color. But if you have a sensitizer like lead as well in certain concentrations, it becomes this vibrant bright red. And, you know, the physics are complicated, involve these sort of transfers of band energy and stuff like that. But the core idea Is that if a mineral is fluorescing or luminescing, it is a balance of these three factors. So you could have a gorgeous bright red calcite vein and then have another calcite vein. That's not luminescing, even though it has the same amount of manganese and lead in it, but it has a lot more iron and some of the iron ions are quenchers. So the problem with this balance is it makes it very difficult for it to be a quantitative analysis. Cuz just cuz it if it's sort of positive ID where if it's bright red fluorescing calcite it tells you a little bit about what's there, but if it's not fluorescing, it doesn't necessarily tell you you know what's not there.
0: All right, so I feel that I got some base now. Now moving on to your Peruvian project area were you able to come up with a methodology by which carbonate rocks and minerals could be classified? And if so, could you explain it just in more detail?
1: Yeah, I will start out by saying most of the practical applications of luminescence are qualitative as best, as I was just mentioning. Mm-hmm. There's tools that would enable you to make a more quantitative assessment. You can do XRF, but you can also do electron microprobe. But really, for the average explorer, it's overkill. You know, we're pretty far off, if ever, from being able to just shine a light on a mineral and say, oh, yeah, this is a translocation or this is a rare earth element in the two plus spot. So the goal should be what direct or proxy relationships can I decipher between my fluorescence and the phosphorescence I see in my logs? So for me, what I was able to do is make very strong connections between the strength and presence of pink and red calcite veins in my deposit and their delta 18 oxygen stable isotope composition so the, the cool part is that mineralizing fluids in that environment had a very depleted oxygen signature and I was able to determine a 100 correlation between the bright red fluorescent calcite veins and that depleted oxygen signature. So essentially, wherever I was able to find those veins, they were positively identified as ore veins. I didn't have a single uh, false positive across both deposits. And so in that particular way, it's an amazing proxy because typically how this calcite is formed, it's often referred to as fugitive calcite. And so the extent of these red calcite veins will be wider than the visible mineralization, but oftentimes even some of this isotopic alteration. So from an exploration perspective, a single surface outcrop with a bright red calcite vein gets you in the neighborhood very quickly. So you can see this red calcite vein, look at the orientation of the veins, try to backtrack, because you know that basically you've had some mineralizing fluid come through here, move its way, outboard from the center. And if you can get the orientation on that vein, ideally you could backtrack towards it.
0: So we're talking about this like a lot is this qualitative technique. I'm wondering, because as it's part of the electromagnetic spectrum, if there would ever be a drive for an existing scanning company to throw on one of these onto their scanners and measure the exact positions of the wavelengths of some of these minerals, and maybe at that point we can make it a bit more quantitative.
1: Yeah. So while I was at UBC, I was trying to collaborate with a chemistry professor who had a long wave UV microscope. And it was Mm -hmm. very cool because I could actually get the number associated with the color. Sure. Now, the issue was it was only long wave because, I mean, chemistry, there's 10 million papers on fluorescence and phosphorescence, and they use long wave a lot. And so for me, the problem was most of my minerals and rocks didn't respond to long wave. And so we tried forever to jerry-rig a shortwave microscope. I tried to take the fiber optic uh, probe out of a TerraSpec mm-hmm. and I was doing all this and I got really excited because I thought it was working, but some of the lamps leak at different wavelengths and that's what the TerraSpec was picking up. But I do think that some of these scanning companies, it'd be so easy because they're so consistently taking the data Mm. and that all they would have to do is track it. I mean, you could also even do, if you've taken consistent photography, RGB values of the photos. I tried doing that. I think if I did it now, it would be super easy to just train essentially like a computer vision algorithm to harness that. But at the time I was subject to whatever free software I could find, and it, it just didn't pan out. But yeah, I mean, there's all sorts of ways to quantify it, as long as everything's consistent, right? Consistent mm-hmm. lighting, the, the distance from yeah. the illumination source, that's really hard to do. But all of that would be solved with these companies you're referring to.
0: Yeah, so interesting. Now I'm thinking like on a totally different plane. But moving back to the more qualitative space where we were, which definitely, as your paper shows has huge value. But one thing that I was thinking, having perfect vision myself, I say with my computer glasses (laughs) on. (laughs) Anyway, but would there be issues for people that are not just colorblind, but not everybody perceives color in the same way? So would there be some kind of issue when trying to apply a technique like this?
1: Yeah, so I am colorblind myself and it forced me to move away from really detailed subdivisions of color, because Mm. when I went through a certain range, I I had about a a set of about 50 reference samples that I would do. And basically I wrote down what I figured were their colors and intensities first. And then self tested myself two times and failed miserably. So I (laughs) came up with a completely (laughs) new, essentially, if you've ever been on an exploration site where they have a rock board, I basically Mm -hmm. just made a rock board four minerals. So I had my reference zero completely non-fluorescent. I think I had zero, one, two, three, four, and zero, one, two, three, four fluorescence. And then instead of trying to subdivide all these different colors, I mean, you should, if the word coral ever comes up, I mean, you've gone way too far. But (laughs) yeah, basically like red, yellow, white, and then there was two or three greens. And so just by being so bad at it, it forced me to just rein in the detail to meaningful divisions that I could consistently observe.
0: What I find so interesting about that comment is just that as geologists, we love to subdivide so much and just uh, whatever the uh, opposite of oversimplify is. But, you know, we just to have all these subdivisions that I find that we could get out of control really quickly with this. So it's, I think, having a reference like that, where you're saying that it actually was this really quite simple Scheme that you produce that had such large scale value, I think that's pretty cool,
1: yeah. If you were to see the data sheet of all of my fluorescent database, it would be the definition of oversplitting. I tried so many things because I just had so much time on my hands. And <laughs> the actual material insights came from, you know, the first level down not the fifth or sixth level of detail it was interesting it was very high level stuff yielded very significant useful responses but that's actually good that tells you that that's if you're really an exploration good. project you don't mm-hmm. need to be of that academic mindset that you would need to be to use a lot of those tools you know if you're doing fluid inclusion work or something like I mean, you have to take it seriously and and do a very detailed job but when we're talking a cheap couple hundred dollar lamp it the qualitative assessments are such that you could hire local field help. You could hire you could train. I mean, you could train a completely green intern and just give them a couple guardrails and just set them loose to to scan outcrops at night. I mean, there's a lot of really cool things you can do because you don't have to go that detailed.
0: Exactly. Following on this, what did you find of note that was different between the different units at this deposit? in the sense that we're working in carbonate replacement, we had regular carbonate rocks, and then we had the SCARN. So did you see any like differences between these? Because we're talking about not subgrouping everything too right. much. And then now maybe we're just all talking about different kinds of carbonates, but are they really the same?
1: So, yeah, I mean, the key thing is they were both carbonate host rocks, and the SANTA, which was the unit that hosted the carbonate replacement deposit, was almost always phosphorescent the base limestone like the black limestone rock would phosphoresce, and it would phosphoresce very strongly in the stylolites that had formed and Mm. the thing that was super interesting about that is i found one paper that talked about phosphorescence in carbonate rocks and basically this chinese researcher had synthesized the diagenesis process and he discovered that at a certain level of diagenesis the pressure and heat would cook off any residual bitumens that were present ah. in the carbonate rock and it would stop phosphorescing and so that got me to think that okay well you know the pariwanka doesn't and so maybe either through the heat from the mineralizing fluids which were a lot more proximal to the to the actual deposit it cooked off any f- remnant and that in the santa that didn't happen, and it makes sense, too, why the stylolites would be so bright because basically you've got local remobilization of the material, and it's really fascinating because that's all I could find, and I haven't seen anything since. Hopefully, maybe this will inspire somebody to look at it, but <laughs> it would be really cool if you could actually determine that, hey, this carbonate is, phosph- is phosphorescing. That says it has never gotten above this temperature during its mm. diagenetic process because if it had it would have cooked all the phosphorus and stuff off so it was like it didn't actually make any difference in terms of my insights to the deposit but it was this really interesting line of diagnostic research that i think would be really cool if somebody could sort of pin down one day
0: oh my goodness i love all these different tangents that research and even in working your daily life because you have to—I don't know—I find that I'm always continually researching something to solve some kind of problem. But where, you know, where the these different rabbit holes take you?
1: <laughs> yeah, just have the main focus of your thesis be broken for 19 months, and yeah. then we'll, we'll, you'll—that's all you do. You just—you yeah. got to fill the time researching stuff. So, <laughs>
0: oh my goodness, <laughs> try and create like new things in the chemistry lab. Yeah, any kind of ore deposit, right? We love our veins. We talked a little bit earlier about some veins. With this, could you see different generations of veining?
1: Yeah, this was the best part. In terms of detail, my paragenesis was not something where I went too detailed. And the greatest part about using luminescence is especially with something like calcite veins. You'll have three or four different veins intersecting each other. And from a textural and visual perspective, it's hard to confidently put one over the other. And then you turn off the light and turn on the lamp and go, oh, okay, yeah, there it is. And it's just so <laughs> obvious and it's so many ways it can manifest itself. So one of the cool things, you've got a fluorescent calcite vein that's cut by a later non-fluorescing vein. So sometimes it completely, it's like a eraser, just completely, it's black through it. And so you've got this vein that has a black cut through it. And then there's sometimes where you've got the opposite. And so you've got the fluorescing vein came later and it's over top the non-fluorescing vein, or sometimes you had something where the intersection, you've got some fluorescence coming through, but not all of it. And between colors and phosphorescence, sometimes you could see, well, these both glow white when it's fluorescing, but you turn off the lamp and one of them phosphoresces. So it keeps glowing. On top of the other one. So you have so, you have Wicked. multiple layers of tools. Mm-hmm. And the relationships are so simple because it's most of the time those cross-cutting veins are destructive of any luminescing property just because they're replacing it. And so it was so phenomenal for that where you'd see – I mean there was a couple times where you couldn't tease it out. But there were so many times where without the lamp, there's no way you could confidently say what was going on. And with the lamp, it was just – child's play. So that was, it's so good for those.
0: So now moving back a little bit to the quantitative space and knowing that you work for a 3D modeling company, do you have any idea of how we would model this or integrate it with other data sets such that it could be integrated in a 3D model?
1: Yeah, so definitely you can always start with the binary thing. Right? Fluorescent, non fluorescent, right? Then you can move into intensities. I guess it would depend on how detailed you were being in your logging, but certainly with something like a scanner that goes down the whole, the entire hole, you could really start looking at whether or not you're seeing changes in intensity or presence. Now, integrating with other data sets, like I said, you're really just chasing proxies. So what are important signifiers that you're trying to find is there a lithological horizon that's significant to your exploration model okay now you've got the lights off you flora- you lamp everything are there differences in the presence absence of fluorescence phosphorescence that you can use as a guide oh yeah as soon as we get cuz like i said as soon as you get in to the ore zones, even in the Santa, the one that phosphoresces, all the background limestone stops phosphorescing. And so it's something like that, that even before you get to the visible ore, the background limestone was decreasing or uh, had reduced its phosphorescence. Now, I can't say for sure that it was, you know, the heat from the mineralizing fluid that cooked it off because I didn't do detailed enough work to say that. But the idea is When you're in exploration you just need something that works you don't even have to be able to explain it right so if you can consistently assign a luminescent property to some change that matters to you you don't have to worry about why it's happening it's just that it is right
0: yeah and I think that really goes to answer my last question here which is how do you visit envision luminescence as an exploration tool
1: there's so many applications because it is the cheapest piece of your exploration toolkit. I would say if you're in exploration, go ham, spend the $400 on the really nice lamp and make it part of your logging, right? That's the idea. You will not look at every photo, you don't look at every mineral, but it's one of those things where it's kind of nice because for a lot of deposits, the majority of your rock doesn't fluoresce, doesn't phosphoresce, so when it does, it's interesting and it's immediate, right? You turn off the lights, you turn on the lamp, it is or it is not luminescing. There's not a time delay like there is with traditional assays. It's closer to real-time spectrometer work and the skill level is really low. And so I've done, like I said, work in Peru and Nicaragua. I mean, anything that you can, whether it be surveying or logging or core photography, anything that you can train co-workers to do reliably in your absence just kind of delegate this data collection task it's just so much more beneficial for your exploration program one of the things that i always suggested was some of these locations people will build walls around their property out of rocks that was something we saw in peru people will just bring all these local rocks around and so one of the things you know you could even have someone just lamping not just outcrops, but these sort of artificial collections of rocks. And again, only one significant find can really point you in the direction. You know, one of these bright red calcite veins can really steer you towards what you're looking for. And like you said, you, you never know when you're going to find it. And so, it's not one of these things where, yeah, we got to buy this $80,000 instrument and train someone how to do it, send them here for 10 days, and they come back, and it's a nightmare in customs. It's just buy a lamp, bring it down, you break it, you just buy another one. It's They're super cheap.
0: No, I think that's really inspiring, and I think also just especially as a young geo site, if you want to add some value, I think taking not necessarily this idea, but ideas like it, some of these seemingly – At the time, insignificant things you might have heard in passing, but could have really large exploration value. And that's how you kind of start to kickstart a little career for yourself there, telling people that they tasted the pyrophyllite wrong and uh, it's actually (laughs) kaolinite or dickite. (laughs) Yeah,
1: I will say to that note, the only, and I'm curious if you've experienced this as well, the Mm. only white clay mineral that I feel you can make a tongue decision on is kaolinite. (laughs) The saltine <laughs> cracker. Oh, wait, there's a great word. It's one of my favorite vocab words. Deliquescence is the term okay. for the saltine moisture absorption kind of experience on your tongue that you get when you lick kaolinite. So
0: the next time we're together, we're going to have to lick some kaolinite yeah, or something. <laughs>
1: yeah, it's it was the one that I was like, all right, everyone says, you know, you put it through your teeth and dickite feels like this. And, Allie and I, I was like, no, these are all nonsense, except kale it was very consistently like licking saltine so I don't necessarily endorse everyone just licking rocks in the field but you know I that's part of who like, we are mm.
0: like I, I could get how some of them because they're with well, a swelling clay structure you know the TOT they might be a little bit you know take all the moisture out of your mouth but I don't really yeah. um, the salt property that's
1: well yeah no know. it's a great <laughs> it would be a great crossword puzzle answer you
0: know oh my god
1: because <laughs> the team letters long or something like that
0: i mean and it sounds french too so it's, it's oh, yeah. even english at that point yeah.
1: Oh, yeah it's a great word to when you're at a wine tasting event and yeah you french want to pre- <laughs> you want to pretend <laughs> you know what you're talking about you just describe the wines with mineral terms oh yeah you can really taste the somatism in the grapes and there's a there's sort of a small deli i'm getting from this <laughs> oh <rileau. my> god. <laughs> and and then nobody's going to challenge you because no one who knows what they're talking about wants to look like they don't know what a deliquescent wine means. So to all you geologists out there, it's a great move. It's a power move.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I want to thank you so much for being here, Sam, and I hope that this discussion has given some of uh, our explorers out there something to try and perhaps to tack on to their toolkit. So thank you all for listening to Geochemistry, and a big thanks again to Sam Cantor for being on the show, dishing some tea, and taking us on this journey. Thanks to our sponsor LKI Consulting and to its Water and Coma Media for our music. And I'm looking forward to chatting with everybody next month.
1: Thanks, Sam.